All right, every good um, series has got to come to an end, and we've been in this one for a bit now, and today marks the final uh, chapter of our boundaries discussion. That said, I would say based on the amount of emails and feedback this series has generated, it seems like it's not just your beloved pastor that has struggled uh, over time with uh, setting good and godly boundaries. And so today as we close, I want to share one last thought, and this is a thought I've had since I began the series that I wanted to end the series with. Uh, I think it's a biblical thought, but it's not just a thought. The reason that I wanted to talk to you about it today and end with it, really highlight it, is I think it's a danger. It's a danger anytime we talk about erecting boundaries. And in order to do that, I, I, I want to define again for, for us what boundaries are, and towards that end of understanding then what boundaries are, gaining a better understanding of what boundaries are not, because therein lies the danger. Boundaries, as we've seen over these many weeks, are these God-ordained, God-designed, God-displayed ways to bring into our lives, into the world, order from chaos. Now, in the series, we've used, uh, in the series, we've seen how God used boundaries in creation, again, to do what? To bring out of chaos order. Last week, we saw that it's not just with, with things like relationships. We're going to talk about that uh, again in a minute. But it, it's in other areas. The scripture is replete with, with commands to put up boundaries in other areas of our life. We spent a lot of, uh, of time last week talking about putting boundaries on our time, right? God uses boundaries in all areas. But maybe in no other, uh, other areas clearly defined as they are in our relationships, in his relationships. God uses boundaries as he relates to us. Towards the same end, right? You, you have this holy and sinless God. He, he's, he's this God that demands. <laughs> he doesn't demand and he can't command. He desires to be in, in an intimate, close relationship with a very sinful and broken humanity. Some of us demand and or desire that same thing with others. And what brings in that relationship between God and his people, and I would argue between us and those that we're trying to be in a relationship, what brings those, those potentially chaotic relationships into harmony are boundaries. We've gone over all those examples before. If you missed them, I, I encourage you to go back and check them out. A boundary, and we're going to put this up for the last time, so, you know, if it's been driving you nuts, this is the last week you're going to have to deal with it. We've been using this as, as a kind of a clear visual to explain what a boundary really is, right? A boundary is essentially something that kind of marks out in our lives. What, it's a property marker, right? It, it defines what's ours and what's not ours. Boundaries, in a sense, define us. This is me, right? All that's within my boundary. And as we've seen, most of the time in chaotic relationships, they get into trouble for two reasons. The first is we have what we're responsible for. We have us, but we have a desire oftentimes to go over here and mess around in others' areas for a couple of reasons usually, right? We, we sometimes try to go over there to help because their life is a mess. Sometimes we, over to, we go over to control them 
right? Sometimes it's to save them from their own choices. Sometimes it's, try to, it's to try to, to direct them to make the choices that we want them to make, the, the choices that would benefit us and, and what's happening in my area. Conversely, the, the other common experience that brings, I would argue, the crazy train into our lives is when others then attempt to come over into our area, our lives, in an attempt to maybe control us, right, to get us to do what it is they want us to do, um, to, to act the way they want us to act, or right, maybe by, by way of drawing an imagery, uh, maybe they have a tree over in their yard that they're responsible for, and the leaves, you know, if you want to use a fall, I was outside in my yard yesterday, to use, to use that metaphor, all of their leaves are dropping in, in my yard, and, and their lack of control of their lives is, is causing a problem over here in my life. So what we've talked about over these many weeks, boundaries are what are required to help us delineate who's responsible for what. And boundaries, if you've been with us, you understand that boundaries aren't punitive. We don't put boundaries up in order to hurt you. They bring freedom so I know what's mine and what's my responsibility and where I can tread and where I can go. You see that when God gave them to to Adam in the Garden of Eden. They bring freedom and health to relationships. Oftentimes, good and godly boundaries save relationships. But now... Here's the very real danger with boundaries. And I chose a a fence as the visual here for a reason. Because here's the danger. Boundaries, if you remember nothing else from this talk, boundaries are not walls. Boundaries are not walls. It takes nothing more than a quick review of, of human history or the current news to know that there is a difference between boundaries and walls. While we are not very good at building and maintaining boundaries, as humans, we crush it at building walls. We're really good at at walls. Biblical boundaries, the, the kind I'll show you in a minute, the ones that are modeled in the scriptures, the ones that are used by God. Boundaries like good fences have gates. They have points of access through which People can come and go. I saw a great quote this week. It said, walls keep everybody out. Boundaries teach people where the door is. How good is that? Walls keep everybody out. Boundaries teach people where the door is. It's interesting. Jesus' disciple, John, did you know he recorded Jesus saying almost that exact same thing? Quote from Jesus, I am the gate Sense the spiritual boundary here. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come come in and they will go out and they will find pasture. Walls close people off. They close us off to others. They keep others permanently at a distance from us. Walls tend to assume we build walls oftentimes because we believe that what's good is inside and what's bad is outside right? But as human beings, especially if, 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 you, if, you, if you take the scripture seriously, what we know is what's inside is also broken. Oftentimes, those of us who have been hurt, especially badly by others, especially if there's been abuse in the past, what we tend to do to kind of protect ourselves is erect walls But it's those same walls that we wrap around ourselves to ensure we're not hurt again that wind up keeping us from healing. It keeps all of my stuff in here. I don't don't permit any of it to come out. 
can keep all the junk inside and not permit any of it to flow outside of myself or my heart. It keeps healing from coming in. If I build the wall strong enough, we think to ourselves, if I build it high enough, then no one will really see the problem. I'll just keep it all right in here. But then, and you know this, right? Then no healing, nothing ever changes. It's all just kept in the dark. It's all just kept kind of secret. This is practically true, right? Last week as I was leaving the second service, a new family to our church, their home was, um, they'd only been in our church for a few weeks, and their home was burned down. Um, they lost everything. I, I, I hadn't met them yet, but we have this wonderful group of men called MHCC Cares, and, and this is what they do. They come alongside of folks, and, and they use, uh, they're charged with using church resources to help people in those moments, right, when those burdens arise, right, to carry each other's burdens. We've talked about this. And this family stopped me. They say, you know, you don't know us, and we just started coming to your church, but Within days of our house burning down, your church came alongside us and provided for us all that we needed in order to sustain, to sustain ourselves. What they didn't say is, they didn't say, no, 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 we don't do that. We don't take handouts. You and your church just keep it. They let the church be the church, right? And they began to heal. Now, that, that's true practically, but friends, I have to tell you, it's true spiritually too. The scriptures talk about, for example, this is one of a million examples, that we are to confess our sins one to another, how do I do that if, I, if I've got these walls built up around me? Nobody knows anything about what's going on in here, right? You don't, you know, you don't talk about those things outside of, you know, so many of us grew up with that concept. You don't talk about those things outside of the house. This is like a little fortress. Nothing comes in, nothing gets out. Something about keeping it in the dark, right, where it just festers. Walls don't permit anybody to come in. Walls don't permit anybody to know. Walls, walls keep it all so tight. Fences do, though. Gates allow things to go in and out. Again, from John, he, he writes this of Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door, and I knock. If you hear my voice and you open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Guys, I want you to know the scary thing, and all of us have this capacity, all of us in our brokenness, right, our desire to wall ourselves off, we can actually, I would argue in our natural state we do, we wall God out. From the moment Adam first sinned in the garden, the scriptures say he hid himself in the bushes, and his offspring, we as his offspring, have been building bigger and better walls to keep God kind of at bay ever since. My friend Deb, she didn't know I was going to address this topic. I was, I was startled when she sent this to me, actually. It was a week ago. Pretty cool God thing. She, she sent me this meme that laid out the difference, and I think so well, between walls and boundaries. We can pop this up, hopefully. Here's a way to define and see what you're building. Walls keep everybody out. Boundaries only keep unhealthy people at a distance. Walls are, are built upon fear. Right? I might get found out. I don't want to get hurt again. And fear, when you build walls, what's it lead to? It leads to judgmentalism and disconnection and isolation versus boundaries. Boundaries, on the other hand, are love-based for others, and they're actually built on my courage enough to have them, not fear. Boundaries keep you safe. Walls lead to isolation. 
Walls, right, as we talked about, are often the sign of an unresolved wound. Boundaries, on the other hand, are actually a sign of healthy self-respect. Do you see that? And walls will keep you a victim forever of your past, while boundaries are what build and bring healing, healthy relationships. Jesus, the gateway, I am the gate. This is, it's just such incredible imagery. Jesus, the gate to the Father, the gateway back into relationship with God. Jesus tells this parable. He tells many parables, story after story. I would tell you to go through them and look at them through the prism of boundaries. They're super helpful. But I would tell you that the best of them, its brilliance regarding this topic can't be overstated, the best of them is, is one that you're likely familiar with, but you've never looked at it from this angle. If you're not familiar with it from, from study, then maybe it's because it's become such a constant, common cultural metaphor. It's the parable, as we know it, of the Good Samaritan. And so in wrapping up this series, I, I want to look at boundaries from two perspectives. The perspective of healthy boundaries, right, and, and, and horrible walls. Luke. He himself was not a disciple of Jesus. Luke, most historians believe, was a trained physician, um, highly educated, likely born in Greece. He, he turned himself into a first-rate historian because he had heard all of the stories just like you and I have about Jesus, and he set about trying to collect them and verify them. And so here's what Luke writes about this. He says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you know the stories of Jesus, most of you do, you know that mo most, uh, the most of the people that felt threatened by him were not the people you would think would feel threatened by him. The people that, that you would think would feel threatened by Jesus would be the prostitutes or the tax collectors or the sinners. But completely opposite, they seem to be the people that are most attracted to him. They call him their friend. The people that are most threatened by Jesus were usually men and so-called experts in the law. Now, we don't know if this man was a member of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were kind of the religious ruling class of the day, the professionally righteous, if you will. But at the very least, he is some kind of trained attorney, schooled in the laws of Moses, starting with the Ten Commandments, as many of you know. That was the beginning of the law. But by the time Jesus is on the scene, there are now hundreds and hundreds of laws, and that's why you would need an attorney to, to ensure that, that you know, these things were, were correctly interpreted, right? And so this attorney walks up to Jesus, and he begins asking him about those laws. And he says to him, based on the law, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, why do we know that this man is really not showing up kind of good-natured, it's because John, or Luke records that, that the man didn't come to get an honest answer from this likely perceived rebel-rousing rabbi, but to test him. That concept of, who's this guy think he is? I know the law. I'll, I'll almost, I'll, I'll out him to everybody. And so he comes to try to set up a trap for Jesus. Jesus being Jesus he gets asked that question, and Jesus being Jesus, he never answers a question with an answer. Friends, can I just, as a side note, if you're looking for an answer to your prayers, keep that in mind. Jesus rarely answers questions with a direct answer. He usually seems to respond with another question, or he begins to tell a story. He does both of those here. 
Well, Jesus looks at him and says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus knows the guy's heart. He knows it's a test, and so he kind of spins it around on him. He, he says, well, you're, you're the expert in the law. Why don't you tell me what it says? What do you, how do you read it? What do you think? And it actually seems like he is an expert in the law because what he understands is what most rabbis in that day, in the first century, were in agreement about. That if you were to summarize the Old Testament laws and just kind of say what some, you know, there's 600 plus of them. If you were to boil them all down to just a couple of things, how would you summarize the law? And, and here's how he answered. He said, well, Jesus, I, I would say love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love your neighbor. Simplistic, right? Even if you just look at where all the laws started, the first 10 of the, the, of the, of the hundreds of commandments, those first 10 commandments, those of you that are familiar with them, you know the first half essentially deals with loving God, right? You shall have no other God uh, other than me. You shall not take my name in vain. And then the second half of them have to do with how we treat our neighbor, right? You shall not steal, you shall not covet. His answer, as I understand it, was the common answer of the rabbis uh, of the day. It was their understanding of the law. If you were going to boil it down, here's what it comes down to, these two Old Testament concepts. Now, that first concept came from a verse in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. It was known, it became known, it became actually a prayer called the Shema. It's the most famous and oft-repeated prayer in Israel. It's called the Shema because it gets its name from the first Hebrew word of the prayer, hear. It's a translation of that word Shema. Israelites, and everybody in the audience knew this, Israelites prayed these words every morning and every evening. This prayer was the most influential tradition in Jewish history. It functioned both as kind of a Jewish pledge and kind of a pledge of allegiance. It was like a hymn of praise. Here, here, here it is it's from Deuteronomy. This is where this teacher of the law was pulling it. Hear, O Israel, there's Shema, Shema, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Answer number one. The second part of his answer, this expert of the law, this concept of loving your neighbor, well, it was first defined in those second half of the Ten Commandments, right? But it was expanded later. You can see it here in, in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, what's known as the book of these laws, Here's, 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 it is further defined. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, friends, it's in reading and understanding this one verse where you will begin this, the whole ministry of Jesus will begin to unfold for you if you understand this concept, this one law. You will understand where this expert in the law is coming from. You will understand why Jesus was such a threat to him, and yet why he was loved by all of the wrong people. Uh, can we keep that verse up there? Friends, who are you not supposed to seek revenge or bear a grudge against? Your people. Your people. Do you have people? I have people. I have a friend that was talking about uh, her, her, her child trying to make some, some new friends, and she's like, well, he's trying to find his people. I like my people. You know who I don't like? Other people. <laughs> I like my people. I feel comfortable with my people, right? And so this is the kind of commandment that I like. This was a commandment given by God, right, 
Who are you not supposed to seek revenge or bear, bear a grudge against? Your people, people that are like me. This was a commandment that was given to Jewish people. And they interpreted it just this way over the centuries. Why? Because God, when this commandment was given, was building a very unique nation. It was different than every other nation on earth. This is why there are so many of these strange laws. Read Leviticus. If you follow these things, which the Jewish nation was, it was going to ensure that they were going to look different, eat different, dress different, and behave different than anybody else around them. They were going to be a peculiar people. And so as they interpreted this commandment, quite naturally, they interpreted it culturally, nationalistically. We treat our people different. We treat fellow Jews differently. And so the command goes on, but it relates back to the your people line. But love your neighbor as yourself, right? So what do you suppose? Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love, in a sense, your people as yourself. Love those that are, that are like you, like yourself. And so for them, who was their neighbor? It was their people. It was other Jews. It was people who shared the same beliefs, the same culture, the same nation. See, I, I have no problem. This commandment's not that hard. I like my people. I like people who think like me. I like people who act like me. We love those neighbors. Now, remember, what do walls do? Walls are built upon fear, which judges, disconnects, and isolates you, right? Boundaries are built on love, Right? Based, love based for others and actually build on courage, not fear. We love certain neighbors. I have no problem with certain neighbors coming right on in. We let them in. But others, we like to erect and build and keep walls. And so that was the expert's understanding of the law. And that's what he gave back to Jesus. That's what everybody thought. When he gave it, everybody said, yep, that's right. To which Jesus, the one whom by the very nature of his walk on earth seemed to radically be redefining who his neighbor was, Jesus replies, you've answered correctly. Imagine that, right? Jesus is like, you got it. You did it. That's right. He says, so I want you to do that, and then you'll live. That's the answer. Now, here's what I want you to do. That's the law that you want to justify yourself by. So if you want to justify yourself by that law, I want you to go, and I want you to 100%, I want you to perfectly keep love for God himself, and then I want you to perfectly love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. If you can do that, well, then you'll be deserving. You're right. You'll be deserving of eternal life, which, of course, nobody can do, right? That's the point of the law is to show us we can't justify ourselves by it. And so I'm guessing this, this encounter at this point becomes a little unclear, a little unnerving for this guy, likely uh, uncomfortable because of the way, and I guess that because of the way Luke describes him. Luke says, but he wanted to justify himself, which is strange because Jesus had just said, you're right, but he wanted to justify himself. And we all do that, right? He's just, he's just trying to, to, to use the law and the commandments to make him feel like, well, I've been good enough, right? This expert, right, he, he's seeing Jesus all the time, surrounded constantly by all of the, the wrong people, the people on the other side of the walls that have been erected around Jerusalem. He's constantly seeing him hanging out with all the people that, that aren't culturally like him, that aren't spiritually like him or politically like him, that are just the other people. 
the ones that are supposed to be kept off. And he knows he's not loving those people. And so just to clarify, because he wants to justify himself, something isn't sitting right. It's not lining up. And so he says to Jesus, well, just to, to clarify. I don't think he really wanted the answer, but just to clarify. Who's my neighbor? Simple question. And yet Jesus, again, does not give a direct answer to it because that's not who he is. The first question, he responded with a question. This time, he just launches into a story. And who is my neighbor? Well, in reply, Jesus said, a man, we don't know who this man is, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Now, I want you to enter the story. I know you've heard the story, many of you, a million times. I want you to enter the story like you're hearing it for the first time. I want you to set the scene, right? Picture it in your mind. This is a bad scene. There is a man lying naked on the side of the road, half dead, likely bleeding, almost certainly unconscious, I would imagine. And so Jesus now, with that in your mind, goes on. He says, a priest which at the time, the audience that he's speaking to, a priest is the highest rank of religious person of the day, right? A priest, like this is the most religious guy. This is the most righteous guy. A this is the guy that keeps the law to the T. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. He gave a wide berth around the man. Why? Well, you know, he had things to do. I mean... The priest had religious duties to, to keep, religious laws to uphold. Some of you might know if, if, if the guy was dead and the priest touched him, it would have made the priest ceremonially unclean. And, and I mean, if he becomes ceremonially unclean, there's all kinds of ceremony he needs to now go through to get clean again. He's going to have to go back to the temple. It's an entire process. It's going to sideline him for a little bit of time. And I mean, there's a church service to perform, right? And so... He goes right by. So, so too, Jesus says, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, a Levite was a little lower on, say, the religious elite scale. It was a little bit more of a common person in Israel. Some commentators actually believe that the expert in the law that is asking this question, the reason Jesus chooses a Levite, is because this man is a Levite. He's an expert in the law. He does his very best to keep the law. That's why he's asking these questions. And the Levite, he too comes upon this man, and he too passes by. Maybe for religious reasons. Maybe just because who knows. Like, enter the story. This guy is lying, just sitting there in the middle of the road, half dead. What's your first inclination when you come upon somebody like this? I don't know when this happened. The people that did this could just be sitting right here. Like, I'm not half dead now, so I'm going to go over there to make sure that I don't wind up half dead with him, right? Like, just fear, just worry about himself. If he stops, they could do the same thing. Today, in the world we live in, you know what the Levite would do? He would take out his cell phone, record a video of it, hope to get a little of the action so he could post it on a YouTube channel and get some clicks. But he's just not going to get involved. I'll just watch what's going down and make sure I post it for everybody to, to gawk at. And so these two Jewish religious guys, the righteous types, they pass by, but Jesus goes on. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came, up, uh, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, 
I know if you've been around the church for a while, you know how startling what's about to happen is. But I need to reinforce this so you really get it. The Jewish people hated, hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans returned the favor. To the Jews, they were known as the Samaritan dogs. They were sworn enemies to one another. And in the year 128 BC, the Jews raided Samaria and burned the Samarian temple down to the ground. The Samaritans retaliated. They snuck into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. They desecrated it by throwing around the bones of dead people. The entire temple had to be closed, cleansed, and reconsecrated. The contempt these two had for each other, you might be aware of it from Sunday school, but you see it in the stories that you're aware of from Sunday school. Do you know the story of the woman at the well? Maybe if you've been around Sunday school. Do you actually know how the, the story of the woman at the well starts? The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a, for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. She's not just a woman at the well. She was a Samaritan woman at the well. In fact, one time when, I like this, I, I never saw this until this week. In fact, one time when the people were turning against Jesus and they're trying to disgrace him in front of everybody, do you know what they said to him? The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Oh, yeah, well, you're a Samaritan. Take that. That's how bad it was. In fact, super interesting. As part of the daily prayers, the Jews would daily pray and ask God to be sure that the Samaritans as a people would not inherit eternal life. That was their prayer. Please don't let them go to heaven because I can't stand being by them through eternity. Daily prayer. This is how much they hated each other. Jesus, in front of what you would imagine as a mostly Jewish audience, is about to make the hero of the story the Samaritan dog. Amen. He went to him, the Samaritan, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, which, stop, it means that a Samaritan just touched a Jew. You could hear the gasp. Oh. Oh, that guy is so screwed now. He's going to have to go back to the temple and oh, all the purification stuff he's going to have to go through. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him. The next day, the next day, a Jew spent the night with a Samaritan? That doesn't happen. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Friends, this is, this, I mean, the scriptures, I can't encourage you to read the Bible enough. The script, this is the best story about boundaries and walls that Jesus could have ever created. What we're witnessing radically right now is the tearing down of century-old walls, really thick, deeply entrenched hatred. But what you also see is the importance of boundaries. There are boundaries all over the story in their, in their book, Boundaries. Henry Cloud and John Townsend actually use this story as an example of good and healthy and godly boundaries. At one point they say, let's retell the story without the boundaries. Suppose, they write, the injured man wakes up at this point, right? He's, he's, in, he's in the inn. The, the injured man wakes up, and as, as the Good Samaritan's leaving, he looks at him and he goes, hey, wait, 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 why are you leaving? 
Well, I, I'm going. I've got to do some business in Jericho. I've got to attend to, the Samaritan replies. Well, don't you think you're being, je- being selfish? I'm in pretty bad shape here. I'm going to be awful lonely sitting here by myself. Who am I going to talk to? How is Jesus going to ever use you as an example? You're not even acting like a Christian. You're going to abandon me in my time of need? Whatever happened to deny yourself? Well, the Samaritan says, you know, his ego kind of stroked by how important he was to this man now. I guess you're right. Would be kind of uncaring of me to leave. I should do more. I could tell others of all the things I've done for you when I get back. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to postpone my trip for a few days. And so he stays with the man for three days, talking to him and making sure that he's happy and content. On the afternoon of the third day, there's a knock at the door and a messenger comes in. He hands the Samaritan a message from his business contacts in Jericho. Quote, waited as long as we could, have decided to sell camels to another party. Our next herd will be here in six months. How could you do this to me? The Samaritan screams at the recovering man, waving the message in the air. Look what you've done. You've caused me to lose those camels that I needed for my business. Now I can't deliver my goods. This may put me out of business. How could you do this to me? There are boundaries all over the story. The Samaritan puts boundaries on his time. He puts boundaries on his resources. He puts boundaries on his involvement. I want you to see, even in his decision-making process, right, he had boundaries there. He didn't follow the example of, the, of, of others. He didn't watch what the Levite did, and he didn't watch what the priest did and said, well, you know, that's what everybody's doing, so that's what I'm going to do. Nor did he allow his decisions to be impacted by cultural norms or societal expectations. This is, and I don't have time to rehash the principle, right? This is the perfect example of what we talked about, where in Galatians it says that we should help each other carry each other's burdens, but everyone was to bear their own load. This became a burden for the man. This was outside the usual things that were going on in his life. And and so the Samaritan came alongside him, and he helped him carry those burdens, while at the same time leaving with an expectation that when well, he would begin to carry his own load. Do you see that in the story? It's a beautiful story about boundaries. But it's an even more important story about walls because, friends, boundaries are not walls. It's not just a story of putting up good boundaries. It's a story about tearing down toxic generational walls. And so, with the hated Samaritan, the one with all the good boundaries in place, right? With the Samaritan now set as hero, And I heard an interesting perspective contemporizing this story. It did it for me this week. Maybe it'll do it for you. Jesus is telling this story right in front of a predominantly Jewish audience at the time who not only hated Samaritans, but it was likely as Jesus told the story of the man lying on the side of the road on the way down to Jericho, it was likely as he told the stories that all of the Jews assumed it was the Samaritan that committed the crime. As he's telling the story, they're going, oh, well, yeah, I mean, that's what happens. That's what those kind of people do. That's why the story is so timeless. That's why the teaching is so profound, right? Because we, I mean, don't we do that? Don't we still have those same thoughts? We hear of certain crimes, right? We're like, well, I know who did that. We conjure up mental images of who could or who couldn't do such a thing. And here's the thing, you know, who could do such a thing? It tends to always be the person, the people on the other side of the wall. It's those people. Now, my, my people don't do We don't do those things. 
Those people do those things. And so with that in their mind, Jesus looks at the, the Levite expert in this law, and he says to him, which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? And so the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And I need you to see for all of time, Jesus redefines who your neighbor is. From what was, was shared as, as the Jewish understanding of the scripture to a whole nother level, there is no more. For God's people, there is no more. My people and those people, those are not boundaries. Those are walls. They need to come down. And that's why a series on boundaries can be so dangerous because we're super good at building walls. And if you and I don't under, understand the difference, right, if we, if we start to kind of use this concept of boundaries to just do nothing more than codify our walls, right, you not only don't bring, bring order out of chaos, you increase the chaos. You'll never heal. Nothing good will ever come in. Nothing healing will ever come in. Nor will any of the toxic thoughts or ideas. And we can wind up, if we're not careful, we can wind up in the name of God. Just like the priests and the Levites, we can wind up in the name of God institutionalizing wall building. Do you see how dangerous it is? Jesus defined, redefined for all of time who your neighbor is, who you were to have good boundaries with, but no walls in between. And so we close with the same question. Series on boundaries over ends with a simple question. Who is your neighbor? Put another way, who is the person that you have not set up or the people that you have not set up good boundaries with? Let's just be honest. You have walled them off. They are those people. They are that kind of person. Who are the people that you can't stand because they're not culturally like you or, or, or nationalistically like you? They don't believe what you believe. In fact, not only do they not believe what you believe, they stand against it. They don't worship like you. They don't behave like you. Or they behave in a way you don't approve of even. They don't vote like you. Uh, you vote. They don't look like you look like. They don't love as you love. Who are the people on the other side of the walls? Those people over there. Because, friends, as we close this morning, you and I have those people and with them, good boundaries need to exist. They do, but not walls. Not walls. And we all have them. And so this is how the story concludes. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. That's just it. Go and do likewise. You know, it's funny. Jesus is not asking you and I to go and do... do um, to do with uh, boundaries and walls, anything that he didn't do. Augustine, kind of a father of the church, so interesting. Augustine and others through the millennia, they've taken this parable and they've said it actually has a third meaning. Third meaning, there's boundaries here, there's walls here, and there's a third meaning. They would say that the man that was going down and was beaten and bruised and harmed and half dead, that man represents Adam. 
And that Jerusalem, where the, where, where, where the, the um, priest and the Levite started, that represents, um, that represents um, paradise. And Jericho, that was the world. The robbers that jumped the man were the, the hostile powers of the day. The priest that came upon him, the priest represents the law. The Levite represents the prophets. But the Samaritan is Jesus Christ. The wounds are disobedience. The inn which, which he was kept in, except all who wished to enter, it's the church. And the manager of the inn is the, the head of the church to whom its care has been entrusted. That would be people like you and I. And the fact that the Samaritan promises he'll return represents Jesus' second coming. Do you see it? This is Jesus Christ, himself the good Samaritan. This is Jesus Christ, himself the gate. Through the boundaries, the good and godly boundaries the Father has put up into eternal life, into eternal relationship with God. Friends, Jesus broke down every single wall at great personal price. He came and he rescued you so you might go through him and come home. It is Jesus, the God of boundary building and wall crushing that now says, as we end today, now you go and do likewise. Let's stand and close in song.